Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me back again. Um, so I guess I have, I maybe have met some of you, not all of you. Um, Rachel Krauss, and I work, I'm one of the directors of community education at KJ. I'm the director of community education alongside my husband, so we got to work together. And I work full-time in the corporate world. I work for Westfield, which is a real estate developer, and I'm leading the brand partnerships for the World Trade Center Redevelopment Project. So that's kind of the two hats in a nutshell. So a little bit of the corporate world, a little bit of the, uh, a lot of it of the, of the uh, Jewish world. So um, this is an amazing time. Number one, tonight is Yom HaZikaron, or today, and leading into tomorrow, Yom HaZikaron, which I'm sure, I'm sure everybody's been reading, right? Posts on Facebook and, and tweets about um, different uh, modes of remembrances. So number one, I just want to dedicate our learning tonight, which is always good to do, to have kind of a, a point of intention, um, to be able to dedicate our learning to those, um, those soldiers who fought for the state of Israel, who died for the state of Israel, and those victims of terror, who all died al-Kiddush Hashem, in the name of God. Um, so we say, the Hebrew phrase is, that their names should always be remembered and memorialized. Um, you know, you hear the number 23,320, which I think is the, 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 the number, and um, we forget that those are first names and last names, and those were brothers and sisters and daughters and aunts and nieces um, and friends and colleagues. So um, it's sometimes important to put to put a name on that number. That it sounds it's a, it's a big number to kind of rationalize and internalize. Um, so I just think it's important to just reflect for a moment on Yomazi Karon, the power of of what these individuals have done for the state of Israel, what the state of Israel has done for Torah Eretz Israel, for the Torah we learn, um, and what it's done for Am Israel as the collective nation of Israel. Whether that means us living in the land of Israel or for those of us that are outside the land of Israel. So um, we owe it to them, and it's a dedication and in remembrance uh, in remembrance of them that we dedicate our learning tonight. So we have two pillars, right? We have the holiday of Pesach, the holiday of Passover, which we're all matzahed out, right? Nobody wants any more matzah, right? No more matzah. Um, we're done. No more matzah pizza, no more matzah bride, matzah this, matzah that. We're done. So we have these two pillars. We have, on one hand, Pesach, and then on the second night of Pesach in Chutz La'aret, and when you live outside the land of Israel, we are blessed with a second Seder, call it what you will, and on that night begins an obligation for what's called Spirata Omer, which is counting. The question is, what are we counting to and counting for? So, does anybody know why we count? Throw it out there. Yeah. Uh, we're counting up to when we receive the Torah. Excellent. Right. So, we're counting up to when we receive the Torah. And many, both halakhic, rabbinic, and philosophical literature, tie the holiday of Pesach to the holiday of Shavuot. And, in fact, it's really one big holiday. And these weeks that we count in between are really the bridge between these two holidays. So it means there's an inherent connection between the holiday of Passover, between what we're celebrating and what are we celebrating on Passover. We're celebrating that we were free, right? That we, were, that we got out of exile and that we experienced an exodus and that we experienced Yah Hashem, the hands of God. So on one hand, we have this kind of the formation of a nation moving from the servitude of Paro to be, from being Avdei Paro, slaves of Paro, to Avdei Hashem, to being servants of God to being partners with God. And Shavuot is kind of this, this joyous way we end the holiday of Pesach. So really the two are inherently connected. Except there's a problem with that. Because if you look through the Torah, which is what we turn to for everything, it is, it is everything we have, um, and is the basis the, of, the, of our value system, of our legal system, of our judicial system. So we look back to the Torah. If you look through the Torah, there is nothing that ties the holiday of Shavuot to Matan Torah to that holiday of receiving the Torah. There's not a single phrase, a single word, that associates Shavuot with the giving of the Torah. The question is why? If this is such a monumental holiday, if this is something that really represents the identity of the Jewish people, getting out of Egypt for what? We sing Dayenu, right? Day Dayenu, it wouldn't have been enough had you not given us the Torah, right? So we got out of Mitzrayim to what? To ultimately get the Torah. And if that holiday is so important, if that day is so important, why doesn't the Torah tell us that? Why doesn't it mark it with that? And what the Torah does, and we'll look at the sources in a minute, is use Sphira, and we'll talk about the different dimensions of what Sphira actually means, to bridge this gap between Pesach and Shavuot. And what we're going to see is that it's not just a matter of bridging the gap, and you actually, Jack, touched on this before, that this idea of, of experiencing the journey, that the journey sometimes is as important as the destination, and understanding the day-by-day -day process that evolves and the day-by-day -day process that we're blessed to experience, when we're, when we're able to do that, the end becomes that much more powerful, that much more meaningful. Um, so the holiday that we experience, or the, the time frame in which we find ourselves, is Sfirata Omer. So what I want to do is look at the different dimensions of Sfirat HaOmer. It's actually quite a confusing time. So we'll take a look at the two sources from the Torah in a second. 
Um, there's another dimension or perspective on Sphira. Does anybody know what calamity took place during Sphira to Omer, during this time period? Does anybody know? So according to the Gemara, which we'll, we'll look at shortly also, excellent, right? So there were 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva that died during this, during this time frame. So there's also a mourning component, right? There's an avilut, there's a sense of loss. So, and there are a couple of questions that come up with that, because according to the halacha, you could actually pick which part of Sefirah to Omer you keep. There are actually two parts of Sefirah to Omer. Is this, is this, has anybody ever heard about this concept? That you, right. So you, what does that mean? If we're mourning, we're mourning. What does that mean I can pick which side I want? When we have the three weeks leading up to Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of Av, which is the day that the temple was destroyed and other calamities took place throughout history, those three weeks are non-negotiable, right? Nobody says, oh, pick, I actually really want to just do the last two weeks. Nobody says that. You have the three weeks, you have the nine days, and you have Tisha B'Av. So if this time period is really commemorating a national calamity in which we lost 24,000 students, and not just 24,000 students, 24,000 the most brilliant minds, and their, their Rebbe was Rabbi Akiva, like none other. If we're really commemorating and mourning their loss, why do I get to pick, number one? Why are the laws so unspecified? It's completely not strict. Can I go to movies? Can I not go to movies? I'm not really supposed to hair, get a haircut, but if I'm allowed, you know, if I'm going to work and I have something important, I am allowed to get a haircut. What is that? What is it? It's not like Shabbat. You're like, oh, if you feel like you can do it today, then do it. But if you don't, don't worry about it. So we don't have that with any other set of halachot. And yet, when it comes to Sphira, which is this time frame that on one hand bridges Pesach to Shavuot, which is happy and elevating, and on the other hand is mourning, but it's mourning with this caveat of kind of mourning, right? So you're kind of mourning because you can, you can kind of pick your time frame. Then what is this time frame really all about? It seems really ambiguous, it seems really vague, and it seems really undirected. And what I want to do is journey tonight through a bunch of sources that we have from our, our holy texts, both biblical, um, Talmudic, and, uh, and more contemporary, and understand what the power of this time frame is and why specifically it is disguised in amb ambiguity and why it's disguised in a vague type of description. Any questions? Okay, awesome. So let's get into source number one. So this is taken from Sefer Vayikra. There are essentially two spots in the Torah that talk about the holiday of Shavuot and only refer to the holiday Shavuot, either A, in reference to um, Pesach, in reference to Yitziat Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, or it refers to the agricultural components of the holiday. Every one of the three holidays, the major pilgrimage holidays, so Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot, all of those three holidays have a commemorative aspect, something that it is commemorating or marking, and also an agricultural component, because we are all farmers, aren't we? Right? So back in the day, living in the land of Israel, we're farmers, we, you know, we've got cattle and farmland and all those wonderful things. And, um, and that was what our monetary, our whole ecosystem and our whole economy was based on our ability to, um, to, to use our farmland and to use it appropriately. So every one of the holidays has both, it's a dual dimension of commemorative and also um, agriculture. So take a look at Sefer Vayikra. What does it say? And you shall count for yourselves from the morrow of the rest day, from the day you bring the Omer, as a wave offering seven weeks, they shall be complete. So this is saying, what's it talking about? Which according to the commentators is the second night of Passover. In Chutz Laaretz, it's the second Seder. In, um, in the land of Israel, it's actually the first night of Chol um, And from there, what do you do? You're going to count seven weeks. Next verse. You shall count until the day after the seventh week, namely the 50th day, on which you shall bring a new meal offering to the Lord. Okay, so now we know that there's seven weeks, and what, is the, what happens at the culmination of these seven weeks? We're bringing a mincha chadashah Hashem. We're bringing this new, revised, re-spirited, re-engaged, reinvigorated karban, this uh, sacrifice to bring us closer to God. Okay, so that's not very descript descriptive about this moment in time where we receive the Torah from God, right? That's, this is not at all what it's saying. There's no sound and light show. There's no lightning. There's no drama. There's no Broadway. We don't see any of that here. The only thing we see here is that there's a counting element. Okay, great. The second source, Sefer Devarim. You shall count seven weeks for yourself. From the time the sickle is first put to the standing crop, you shall begin to count seven weeks. And you shall perform the festival of weeks to the Lord your God, the donation you can afford to give according to how the Lord your God shall bless you. So this is personalizing it. So now it's not just a matter of counting, but it's my relationship with God. So now it's becoming a little bit more personal. It's not as macro, it's not as national. It's focused a little bit more on the individual. 
Verse number 11, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter and your manservant and your maidservant and the Levite who lives, um, who is within your cities and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are among you in the place which the Lord your God will choose to establish his name therein, everyone is invited. So on one hand, it's individual, right? So this, it's about my own relationship with God and my own thanks, my own gratitude to God. And yet it's also collective because this is telling us that it's not just me and my family that I'm responsible for. Who else am I responsible for? Everyone. The widow, the orphan, the Levite, a maidservant. It doesn't matter. I am responsible to make this a participatory experience. So we need to bring everybody into the fold. And finally, verse number 12. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall keep and perform these statutes. Ah, so here we go. So according to Sefer Devarim, which is Parsha Re'eh, which is the, um, the specific chapter uh, or Parsha portion which it comes from, this is now drawing this connection back to Pesach. So we're saying that Shavuot is inherently somehow connected to Pesach. So if that's the case, again, we come back to our original question. Then say so. Then say, this is a wonderful holiday you're going to experience because seven weeks after you get out of the land of Egypt, you're going to experience God in a way in which you've never seen him before. You're going to receive the Torah. You're going to receive this structure, this guidebook that's going to give us a value system, that's going to help us get the most out of life that we can, both in terms of our relationships with each other and our relationship with God and our relationship with ourselves. Why doesn't it say that? The Torah is very specific when it wants to tell you something. Do we know how to observe Pesach? Right? Can't eat hummets, can't do this, I have to do this. The right, we know it. The Torah is very specific about it. So again, the ambiguity is almost uncomfortable because if this is so significant, which it is, then why isn't it a little bit more, more specific? Any questions? Okay, so we're going to start to carve to carve some of, uh, some of the answers here. Um, one thing I just want to point out in the first source, in verse number 16, it talks about weeks, right? So, Sheva Shabbatot Tzimimot Tzihiyana, and then it also says Hamishim Yom, 50 days. It's the same thing, right? We can all do math, kind of, right? So 49 plus into the 50th day, right? So it's more or less the same thing. Why does the Torah have to tell us that there's a difference between weeks and days? So there is something about time here, and there is something about a daily awareness and a weekly awareness, and we're going to be building up on that. If I were to ask you, you know, what's more important, counting up or counting down? Uh, counting up. Who said that? Okay, why is counting up? Because there's only one night to go. Like, just go up. Like, if you're going up, you're working towards something. Right. If you're going down, you're just declining. Right. Okay, no, for sure, and, we're, and we're, we will definitely come back to that. So in Times Square, right, it's December 31st, 2015, we're all there, right, in our crazy 2016 glasses, right? We're all going to be there. I'm kidding. Um, what happens? What do they do? Do they do a count-up? What do they do? A countdown, right? So, so yes, you're 100% right, but there's also a countdown component. Now, if we think about times where we count up or, or, or counting, forget counting up or counting down, if we think about times that we're counting, there's usually something very emotional attached to that, right? So a countdown could be, or a count up can be to a wedding, to um, a birth of a child. It can be um, for something that's a birthday. It can be something that's really important, and there's an anticipation of that taking place, that event that will occur. But then there's also almost like an anxiety anticipation, which is when you don't want something to end, right? So if you have a friend that's in town, and it's you, or you're in Israel, right? Has everybody here been to Israel? Right? You're in Israel, you don't want to leave, right? And you know it's your last night in Israel, and then it's your last visit to the hotel in Israel, and then you're getting into the cab, and you're driving to the airport, and you get out in the airport, and there's this like, oh, feeling that sets, and you're like, I don't want to leave, I don't want to leave. So there's this same anticipation, there's a counting that's taking place, but it's for the reverse emotion. So we know that counting happens, and counting is something very emotional. So again, whether it's counting up, counting down, it's usually bookended by something you are anticipating with excitement or something that you're anticipating with fear, potentially fear, or just uh, nervous or, or whatever, whatever emotion you want to attribute to it. And both of those components are also present in the time of sphere, which we will, we will talk about. So take a look at source number three, the Rambam. The Rambam was lived in the 1100s um, and is the foremost halachic authority in rabbinic literature. Um, Maimonides was a, 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 I mean, an unbelievable Torah scholar, was also a doctor, um, so kind of had that, you know, medical side, like also had, he had a career and also Torah, he could kind of combine the two. Um, and what does he say? He says the following, Shavuot is the time of the giving of the Torah. 
In order to honor and elevate this day, we count the days from the previous festival until it arrives, like someone who's waiting for a loved one to arrive, who counts the days by the hours. This is the reason for counting the Omer, from the day that we left Egypt until the day of the giving of Torah, as this was the ultimate purpose of leaving Egypt, and I will bring them to me. So the Rambam is bringing this emotional component into this. He's introducing this idea that there's accounting in terms of anticipation. There's accounting something remarkable is coming. I'm waiting for something remarkable to take place. And one of the major questions that's asked is why didn't Matan Torah happen at the other side of the Yamsuf, right? If, if God took the Jewish people out of the land of Egypt and he crossed this, you know, we, amazing miracles, we have the ten plagues, we have the crossing of the sea, give them the Torah, right? They're, they're, all, they're all there, they're all happy, they're all engaged. Why wait? What, what is it about this gestational period? Why do you need seven weeks? Yeah. Didn't they need to, wasn't, well, that was the time they spent traveling in the desert, and they were kind of, like, on their own. So they really had to, like, understand what it meant to be alone, right? And, like, taking God's miracle and, and kind of processing that on, on their own. Definitely. For them as a nation. Definitely. There's definitely a growth period that takes place. You know, listen, when you talk about human development, right, in the world of a baby, it's, they don't know anything else exists other than that. And it's, it's hilarious um, and remarkable. To watch how a ch- it's like an on-demand. It's like I'm crying. Yeah, I need to be picked up. Like I, I need to be changed. I need to go through whatever it is. That there's this on-demand need where they don't realize that there's anyone else. Then you, you mature. You realize there's other people, but you don't necessarily care, right? That's and then hopefully we evolve. That's like the teenagers, right? And then hopefully we evolve to a point which we're able to transcend that and we're able to realize the need for human relationships and the need for human exchange, and we do care about that and we actually invest in that. So those are, I mean, I mean, standard psychological stages of human development. So when we talk about the Jewish people at what they were, think about the mental state that they were in when they were slaves in Egypt. And you're talking about a beaten people. You're talking about, um, you know, uh, just, just to give a quick example, the first, um, the first Makkah was the, the first plague, was the plague of blood, right? And one of the questions is, you know, why blood? And there's all these explanations and interpretations, why these specific ten? So one of the reasons that we started with the plague of blood is that the Nile was the only witness to the amount of murder that took place in the Nile. So when that Nile turned red, that was literally the blood of thousands and thousands of children that had been thrown into the Nile. So when we think about it, you know, three and a half thousand years later, you're like, oh, dumps for day, you know, blood, and then there were frogs. And if you pause for a moment and meditate on that idea that the Nile was the only witness to those murders, and all of a sudden, that's God's way of saying, I saw what happened too. So you're talking about a people who were beaten, who had no one on their side, who were enslaved who experienced unspeakable trauma, and here they are being taken out of the lands of Egypt. But just because you're, taking it, being, you're, you're taken out doesn't mean you're free. You're not free because you opened up a jail cell and walked out. We know this from post-Holocaust um, Holocaust stories, where just because somebody walked out of Auschwitz doesn't make them free. It, it, it's, it's a lifetime to learn what it means to be free. It's a lifetime to learn how to regain confidence, how to regain what you need in order to cope and, and go through life. It takes a lifetime to do that. So there was this gestational period of seven weeks that, and maybe some could argue it's not even enough, but the idea of getting the Torah wasn't the, also wasn't the end of the journey. There was a continuous process, and these are landmarks. These are kind of pillars throughout our journey. But this idea that there's an anticipation, and it's not just a matter of being taken out. The Jewish people need to learn what it means to want something. Because when you're a slave, yes, you want to be free, you want to be free, but you don't that's all theoretical, right? It's not actually anything. You, there's no actionable item. There's nothing you can actually do about it because you have no control over it. So what does it mean to want to be free? What does it mean to want a relationship with God? What does that mean? Those words are meaningless if we don't have context. Those words are meaningless if we don't have direction about how to accomplish that. You know, when somebody says, I'm so in love, great. What does that mean? What do you love about the other person? What is it that they bring out in you? What do you bring out in them? Where's the potential of the relationship? Because what you love today is going to change, it's going to evolve, it's going to grow. So you need to love something that also has the potential to sprout and become something else. And that revised entity has potential to become something else, to sprout into something even further and more beautiful. So how do we know what it means to want God if we don't even know what it means to want ourselves? So we need to first give that time to settle in and time to internalize that idea. And what I want to do is introduce the concept of spirot. So I don't know if anybody's ever learned about kind of the Kabbalistic dimensions of spirot. Yes, more or less? A little bit? Not so much? Okay, a little. So there are ten spirot. It is not, there's no irony and it's, there's no coincidence in the fact that the word spirot and spira 
are completely intertwined, and they are essentially um, expressions of the exact same word. So there's a deep connection between these. What are the spherot? The spherot are ten qualities or characteristics that we attribute to God. These are not necessarily God's character and nature, because we don't attribute human qualities, or we cannot attribute human qualities to an infinite being when we are finite. And because we are bound by language, and we are bound by finite nature, we have to use certain words to attribute to God, just for our realm of understanding. But just to be clear, these are not God's attributes. These are the way that we can define God in our terms, or ways that we can start to understand God within our terms. Um, the tense we wrote were part of what made creation happen. It was the precursor of creation. And we'll talk about what these ten are in a minute, um, but in the story of creation, there are a couple of different midrashim, a couple of different commentators that suggest and talk about what the purpose of creation was all about. And the purpose of creation was to form a people, was to form a world, and then ultimately within that world, um, populate it with people. And amongst that people, have a very specific nation that is, um, that is blessed to have a remarkable relationship with God. So we know that all of those steps take place, and the Sfirot are almost the building blocks, the construction. You know, I, work, I work on a construction site, right? So I'm w working on uh, this development of World Trade Center, and I spend half my day in executive meetings and half my day with a hard hat doing, you know, going on site to like, see the progress of the project. And when you go into a construction site, every single item there is calculated and is thought and is prefabricated. So you walk into this massive construction site and you're like, that nail, that one tiny nail is significant. Somehow it fits into this massive process and into this massive project, but every single item has significance. Everything has relevance and everything has purpose and the intent and the location of that is very specific. So when we attach ourselves to or try to understand what these tense spherot are all about, this is the construct of the world. And because we are created in the, in the image of God, it says that in the book of Genesis, that God breathed his own breath in through our nostrils, and we became, we are created in the image of God. Um, so we know that, and in order, because we are created in the image of God, and we have access to understand certain tools, or using tools to understand dimensions of God. Again, we can never understand God because it, he it lives in the infinite, and we live in the finite, so there's already a natural separation. Um, but these ten categories, these ten qualities and characteristics give us a way to understand ourselves. And if we are created in the image of God, then it gives us the window to understand a little bit about what it means to be created in the image of the divine. And there's a very specific reason that we are in the Sphira period and what the bridge is between these two. So I want to just take a look quickly at source number four. It is said that during the Sphira period, there are, there, so there are ten spherot, three spherot, three of these qualities and characteristics are above our world. What does that mean? It means that we live in a physical world. It's part of our responsibility to synthesize the physical and the spiritual and to create meaning and to create sanctity in our lives where we are. That's our, that's our job, essentially. So through the guidance of the Torah, through the perspective of halakha, it is our job to synthesize and bring God into our world and be mekadesh and to sanctify the world around us um, in a way that is meaningful and in a way that is, that is relevant. There are three qualities of God, or again, not qualities of God, but qualities that we attribute to help define and understand within our terms that are outside of our realm of understanding. They're outside of this world. So there are seven that are considered accessible within the lower world, and there are three that are called the malam and hatzavah. There are three that there are, they're just outside of our realm of nature. It doesn't mean that they, we, should, we shouldn't learn them. We absolutely should learn them, and we should engage and try to understand the deepest way we possibly can. But during the Sphira period, which is very grounded, why is it grounded? Because we were slaves and we're going to receive a Torah. What's the purpose of the Torah? The purpose of the Torah is to create the, synth the synthesis, to make this world a holy place, the synthesis that we are created in the image of God, and we have the opportunity to bring God into everything that we do on a daily basis. So it's very grounded. So what we do is we work within the seven qualities that are grounded within our world. And what are those qualities? And if you take a look at the right, um, or the middle column, um, chesed, which we translate actually as giving, and I'll explain why these translations are given. Chesed is giving. Guvura is actually restraint. Many people translate Guvura as strength. And we think about strength being like, you know, I'm a buff CrossFit trainer, right? I have Guvura, right? I have strength. But really it's translated as restraint. Tiferet which is usually translated as beauty, it's not beauty, it's harmony. Netzach, ambition, hod, devotion, yisod, connection, malchut, receptiveness. And if you look at the image on the left, 
And if you've ever seen the Sphero before in any book, this is exactly what it looks like. The only thing that is sometimes interchanged is Keter, which is the one on the top, is sometimes interchanged with Da'at. Keter means crown, Da'at means knowledge. The only reason those two are interchanged is that when we are talking about the perspective of God, it is Keter, it is crown. When we're talking about the perspective of man, it's Da'at. So that's, that's the, only, the only difference, which is why, um, depending on which book you're looking at and the context of what's being discussed, those two things will change. Um, so if you look at the seven below, they are all, they all cross each other, so there's an inherent underlying mechanism that connects them, and they all filter down through Yisod into Malchut. So it's almost like a conduit. You think about like electricity, right, and running in all these different, all these different places, and how do, you, how do you filter, how do you, how do you make it come in one direction? So our filter is Malchut. What is Malchut? Malchut is God's kingship, right? God can only be king if he has subjects. If he has no subjects, he's not king. King of nothing is nothing. So we, got, we crowned God because our very existence justifies God, God's role as king. So Malchut is this kind of conduit where everything filters down into our world. The seven weeks that we have between Pesach and Shavuot are comprised of these seven attributes. And within these attributes, you have sub-attributes. What does that mean? For example... Day one of Omer would be Chesed. Day two of Omer would be the quality of Gevura within Chesed, the quality of restraint within the context of giving. Of giving. Um, if you take a look at week two, week two would be Gevura and the power of Gevura within Gevura. And um, two in one day, so your 15th day of the Omer, would be, um, sorry, would be Chesed within the quality of Gevura. Does that make sense? Every day is the quality within that week's quality. And number one, what that does is that creates a roadmap, right? It's very hard to concretize the idea that we went from slaves to being free, that we went from being in a land of Egypt surrounded by idol worship, surrounded by um, horrible, a horrible existence, to going to receive the Torah from God. How do you do that? How do you grow? What does that mean to grow? I mean, I'm sure everybody hears the word all the time. Are you growing? Do you feel like you're growing? What does that mean? Right? It's like the, it's like the classic question. I'm grow- I've grown so much. Really? What does that mean? Because you feel inspired? Because you feel like you're turned on to something? That's great. That's a really important thing to feel and experience. But what does that mean to grow? You've taken on something? Good. Okay, that's something tangible. But what does it mean in the greater context? And I think that sometimes that gets lost. You know, when you have, um, you know, think about professional reviews, right? So I, everybody has performance reviews. And when you have performance re- reviews, there are very tangible milestones. Did you meet the budget, right? Did you deliver all the things that we said you were going to deliver? Did you manage your team well? Did you, right? You have, like, tangible things. When it comes to spiritual growth, it's sometimes much harder to do that. And there are tools and there are tactics, but specifically as it pertains to this very powerful time, and it's a very profound time that we find ourselves in, this is the roadmap. So what is giving? So we'll just look at two, at just two attributes for a minute. Chesed is giving, right? Is chesed a good thing? Giving, right, giving is good. Is giving ever bad? Yes. Yeah, when is it bad? When you give so much, you have nothing left for yourself. Excellent, right? So within giving, we need to exercise restraint, right? So if you think about all of these wonderful qualities, and all of these are wonderful things, who doesn't want to be connected? Who doesn't want to live harmoniously? Who doesn't want to be receptive? All of us want these things. But each one of these counterbalances something else because anything to an extreme isn't good. Anything to an extreme isn't, isn't healthy. In the creation of the world, what was, in, uh, was God separated um, night, like light and darkness? And, um, and it talks about the separation of water, right? If there was no end to water, then we'd all be underwater. It's a miraculous thing if the ocean comes to a stop at a certain point. Like, did anybody ever think about that? Like, when you sit on the beach, like, it stops at a certain point. Like, that's remarkable. So water, even though it's wonderful and we need it, right, without having a stop, doesn't allow for human existence. So everything, even within God's realm, within nature, you always have a counterbalancing factor. And this time period allows us to delve into these qualities that are divine. These are divine qualities that we have access to and allows us to develop a framework of thinking about ourselves in terms of our relationship with God and in terms of our relationship with each other. So tonight happens to be, I believe it's Netzach of Tiferet. It's ambition within the quality of harmony. So tonight, I don't know, after 8, 10, when it's officially tomorrow, um, it's the quality of ambition within harmony. 
And if we meditate on that and think for a second about what that means, number one, it will be completely personalized, right? Because everyone will experience this differently because if a person is, is a giver to an extreme, that person knows where they need to exercise restraint. Or you might be a giver that knows that they could give a little bit more, and that's also exercising this quality of restraint because you're restraining your own, your own selfishness to become selfless. So all of these have these dual dimensions. Um, so if we just meditate for a second on the quality of being ambitious within harmony, how powerful is that? Right? You think about being ambitious and drive. And, you know, I always talk about this, like, at, you know, at work, who did you have to kill to get where you are? Right? I, people, you know, people get into these powerful roles and, you know, big positions. And you're like, who did, who did you have to hurt in order to get there? Because it's very rare that somebody makes it to the, you know, the senior executive level without having to have had a few, you know, casualties on the way. So what does it take to be ambitious? What does it take to be ambitious within harmony? How can you be both? Because they somehow sound like they're contradicting with each other. Um, one thing I want to point out is that the month of ER, which actually started yesterday, which is the Hebrew month that we're in right now, is the only month that there's a positive commandment every single day with regard to a holiday, and that is the blessing of Sphira. So every single day, we have the opportunity to make a positive blessing, or a blessing for a positive commandment, that allows us to access our own self-reflective tool. That's unbelievable. So every single day, we have a tool given to us to meditate on, to internalize, to figure out, what does this mean for me? What does it mean to be devotion within, with restraint? What does that mean? What does that, what does that look like for me? Yeah. I don't know if this is a stupid question. No such thing, but go ahead. What, are, what, what about the day that it's hands off and hands off? What about, like, you have... Excellent question. So let's think about it. Yeah. What is that? Let's, so let's first define... So. Um, so Netzach is ambition, okay? So we can, number one, you can take the perspective that Netzach, that's the two opposing forces of Netzach itself. So some of these qualities are the counterbalancing factor, but, you know, is, is love a good quality? Right? We say yes. Can love also be very dangerous? Absolutely, 100%. So you can take Netzach itself and stretch it out. On one side, you have something very negative, and on one side, you have, on one side, you have something very positive. So you look at the quality within the quality itself, as opposed to using other qualities to counterbalance. The quality itself becomes the counterbalance, which is remarkable. So you think about um, you know, the idea of, of you know, if somebody gets angry. So if somebody is, is naturally angry, you can counterbalance that with other things. Imagine if you can counterbalance that with anger. How's that, what does that look like? Because two negatives, you know, when you have two, you know, two negative numbers, make a positive. Two wrongs don't make a right, but you have two negatives that make a positive. So within the quality itself, you can find counterbalancing levers. So, and this gives us the tools to be able to access these dimensions of growth. And these are the steps of what it means to become free. So these are the exact steps of what it means to become liberated, of what it means to evolve as a human being, what it means to move out of our negative qualities. Because um, it's interesting, the word Mitzrayim does not mean Egypt. Newsflash, does not mean Egypt. What does Mitzrayim mean? Does anybody know? Constraint. That's what Mitzrayim means from, from the word Tsar. Min Tsar Karatiyah, which is one of, the, one of the chapters from the book of Tehillim, from the book of Psalms. It says, from the straits I called you. What, what is a straight? Something very constricting, right? When do you feel constricted? When you feel stuck. When do we feel stuck? Sometimes in our own routine or in our own qualities or in things that are really difficult for us. You're stuck, right? You feel like you can't move out of it. Min Tsar Karatiyah. So it's very easy to leave Egypt. It's very hard to leave Mitzrayim. Right? It's easy to leave that physical place, but how do I leave the Tsar? How do I leave Mitzrayim? This is the tool. This is the mechanism. And every single day is a blessing in and of itself to access these tools to help us achieve freedom. And that's personal freedom. That's spiritual freedom. It's emotional freedom. It's physical freedom. It has so many different manifestations. But this is the tool that we use and that we have access to to help reflect on ourselves. So all of a sudden... You know, we go back to the question, yeah, this is counting up, because every day is significant. Every day has a remarkable and unique nature, and is significant in its own right. And if you lost your blessing, that's fine also, you can still do this, um, because if you miss the blessing, everybody you know the, the law about it, if you, miss, if you miss the blessing on a consecutive night, then you technically lose your blessing, but you should still say sphere anyway. Um, and um, so you still always have access to these tools, but there is a positive commandment every single night to access this power and access these tools and use it as a mechanism 
to unlock potential, to deal with our own strife, our own struggle, to deal with issues that we're having in relationships, to deal with anything that's going on in our personal lives, deal with what's going on in our national lives. So again, I think about you know Yom HaZikaron that coincides with ambition in harmony. That's amazing, right? And what's tomorrow? Tomorrow's going to be devotion within harmony, which is Yom HaTzma'ut. So the day in and of itself, and you think about the power of how it relates back to, to the Sfirot, to the Sfirot, and what are the Sfirot? It's our connection to God. It's why we're all here. The creation was through the Sfirot. This, is, this was the blueprint for God when he created the world, and the whole purpose of the world and creating the world was that God was our king, we are his children, and it's all filtered out through that, through that mechanism. And we have the Torah, and we have access to other tools to be able to continuously develop that relationship with God. Um, I'm actually going to skip over Source 5 now, for now, in the interest of time. Um, but we're going to come back to this. It's a two-part series, so we'll talk a little bit more about the mourning component. Um, and also Lag Ba'om. Yes, go ahead. What about the other three Excellent question. No, no, excellent question. So um, for the purposes of Spira, for this, these, these seven weeks, we deal with the seven qualities that are closest to our olam, closest to our world. The other three spirot are what's called the ma'alam and hateva. So it's, it's outside of our, of our grasp of understanding. Those three spirot are actually dealt with during the aserot yimei which are the ten days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, between um, the, uh, the Jewish New Year and Yom Kippur. Um, there are ten days. Each of those ten days is also devoted to one of these ten attributes, and that's when those last three kind of come into a, a, little, bit more, um, a little bit more into our realm. But the reason for that is that we are in a very grounded state. We were slaves. We need to learn to what it means to become free in the human terms. So we deal with the seven that are closest to our realm. Great question. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that these are the steps for creation and also the steps to freedom. Is that right? Mm -hmm. the so are they in a particular order? Or Yes. We could probably spend a year and a half just on the order. And if you look so at... This order right here. It is this order, exactly right. It is this order. So if you look at the Sfirot, number one, you have the ones that come down the middle. And we're not going to spend too much time on it tonight. We can definitely get more into it next week. It's very, oh yeah, of course, um, very powerful stuff, very powerful material. So Keter, Tiferet, Yisod, and Malchut, and I apologize, I'll have this, I can have this in English next week um, for all of them. That midline down the middle, right, so you have the four attributes there. You have three on the left and three on the right. So number one, we talk about all the ones on, um, on the right have more, oh sorry, all the ones on the left have more feminine attributes, and the ones on the right have more masculine attributes, and we'll talk about what that means. It's not male and female in the terms in which we know it, um, but they're very, I mean, they're very powerful ideas embedded within this. This is the whole, all of Kabbalah is based on this, so it's a whole school of thought that's based on this. Um, for example, just kind of something interesting, Lag Omer, right, which is the 33rd day of the Omer, is the day that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai died. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was the author of the Zohar. What's the Zohar? The Zohar is the basis of all Kabbalah. So even the idea that the Sfirot are tied to Sfira, that the author himself dies during Lag Omer. So it's, and there are many, and again, we'll, we'll get into it more next week. Um, but what I want to do, is any questions? Yeah. Yeah, it is frustrating. So yeah, so number one, you can still absolutely, absolutely do it. So this is where there's the this counterbalance of halacha and the system of halacha and the things that are really frustrating. So there is a, there is a balance between the two, but essentially, even though they are each independent mitzvot, because there is a counting component, it relies on the day before. So for example, we can't make the bracha yet tonight, but last night was 17. So. I'll leave it to you mathematicians to figure out what tonight is. But, right, so last night was 17. Because it builds on the day before, even though it is an independent mitzvah, it's inherently tied to the day before. Which, we think about opposing qualities, like what the spirit are themselves. That in and of itself is opposing. Are you independent or are you codependent? You can't be both. But this is telling you you can be both. So it, it's almost, it, it's a tough pill to digest because it's also, it's really annoying, especially like my, my brother-in-law was in from Israel and didn't keep a second Seder, so he was upstairs doing, I don't know, doing whatever, and um, missed, he missed the bracha on the first night, because we all sat at the second Seder making a bracha, this was a few years ago, um, we all sat at the second Seder making a bracha, and he was upstairs, like, I don't know, taking a nap, so um, he missed the bracha, so he can still say it, it's still good to say hayom, yom, blah, 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 um, and then also to reference the attribute of the day, it's still very important to do, but it's, it's minus the blessing. Yeah. Wait. So that's for the whole time, or you lose the blessing for 
the whole time unless 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 you make the blessing unless you make the blessing that day correct so if i forgot to do it last night let's say i forgot to do 17 it's not yet shkia, so the sun hasn't gone down i can make the blessing uh, oh, sorry, I can say Hayom Yom Shiva Asar Yom, so I can say what the day is, and then I can continue the following night with the bracha. So you have a 24-hour window. That's why everybody should get the app with the reminders, right? And if so, you're Sparta, you don't have to, you're not required to count. <gasps> why? I don't know. Nalini taught me this stuff. Hmm. Why? Don't know. Didn't you know that. Download the free Omar Counter app, and you can read about the. Yes, you can definitely read about this. Download the app, and the app will give you also very um, kind of defining terms on what the day's attributes are all about. But I have to look that up. I never heard that Spartans yeah. do not. Well, it's even a question of women. women. Ah, so then you get into the whole question of Ms. Patha Seisha's Um Yeah, so Omer or something. And you can set up, you can do daily texts, daily reminders. Uh, but we'll come back to that. Well, right, because in, so in halacha, you have what's called a suffix, which means that there's a doubt. And there are four key categories. We're going to deviate for two seconds. There are four key um, buckets in which halacha falls under. There's chiyuv, I'm obligated, asur, I'm forbidden, mutar, I'm permitted, um, or, one second, um, or chayav, obligated. So those are the four categories. Depending on the mitzvah and depending on which category it falls in, the questions are raised about whether a bracha is obligated or a bracha is not obligated. So it gets, I mean, this is very technical and very halakhic, but um, there is a question about mitzvah between time-bound mitzvot and women being obligated. So number one, just on that term alone, obligated. So if somebody isn't obligated, that's fine. It doesn't mean they can't, okay? So I'm just pointing that out as a difference. Um, there are certain things that, that, there are, that are gender-specific on both fronts, um, but just because there is a time-bound mitzvah doesn't mean, again, a woman cannot it means you're just not obligated. So it's just important to point out just the halakhic difference between those two. Um, okay, so what I want to do is take a look at source number six. Rabbi Ephraim Ashri. Has anybody heard this name before? Amazing. He's the most amazing, amazing, amazing. He has since, uh, since passed away. Um, Rabbi Ephraim Ashri uh, was a Holocaust survivor who lived in the Kovna ghetto and was the rub of the Kovna ghetto. And during the war... People would come and they would ask questions. And he has a six-volume series on the questions that were asked. And if you read through, forget the answers, if you read through the questions, you break down crying. Just thinking about the types of questions that people would ask during the Holocaust. So questions like, there is a, um, there's a kinder transport that's taking place tomorrow morning. This is out of his book, one of his questions. And my son is one of those 1,200 children that's part of that. If I know the Gestapo, and I'm able to get my child back, am I allowed to, knowing that that child, that headcount is going to be replaced with another child? So me removing my child is now putting a death sentence on another child. Am I allowed to do that? Questions like that. And you think about, again, at a time in history, and we all have studied the Holocaust. We all experienced Yom HaShoah last week. To think about the quality of a question like that, at a time like that, in an environment like that is mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah. Wait, sorry, I think I missed the intro. Where, are the, where is this? It's called, it's a, it's, a, it's a selection of books, or a collection of books, rather, called Mima Makim, and it was written by Rav Ephraim Ashri, who was a Holocaust, he himself was a Holocaust survivor, was the Rav during the Kupna, in the Kupna ghetto during the war, and he documented, so get this, he wrote down, on potato sacks, he wrote down the questions, he buried it, and said, if I survive the war, I will come back and dig up these questions. He survived the war, went back to the Kovna ghetto, dug up those questions, or dug up, you know, this box of, of potato sacks, um, and, uh, and published this book. He lived on the Lower East Side. Um, he was a remarkable, remarkable person, remarkable leader. And if you look, again, at the set and series of questions, another question, just to, and, I'll, and then we'll get into this one in a second. Um, there was a question about a 12-year-old boy. He was 12 and a half, and he wanted to put on tefillin. And Rav, um, Rav Ashri knew that this was a boy that was never going to make it to his bar mitzvah because the, the ghetto was going to be liquidated um, and he was a child that was going to be part, of, um, be part of a death march or whatever it was, and he knew this was a child that wasn't going to make it. And the child asked, Rav Ashri, can I put on tefillin? And Rav Ashri, what's so amazing is that like, Rav Ashri actually goes through a methodical, structural, halakhic approach to the answer. So it's like, if this kid asked me, I'd be like, 
yeah, put on spill and make a bracha, totally. Like, like if that's what you feel you need to do to speak, yes, 100%, right? But that's not what Rav Ashri does. Rav Ashri never waters down the halakha for the sake of emotions. So he deals with the questions in a very methodical, very halakhic realm in a halakhic sense. And, um, and here you have this 12-year-old boy who lost his parents, lost his siblings, is surrounded by death. There are people, there are skeletons in the street. And he asks Rav Ashri, can I learn, can I put, can I put on spilling? And Rav Ashri's answer is, is brilliant. He goes through and he says, this particular boy, because he's so learned, because he's so dedicated, he used to sit with Rav Ashri every single day in the ghetto and learn Torah with him. And he says, because this boy, I have seen that he is really dedicated to Torah, and he's 12 and a half, and according to the Gemara, and he starts quoting. He didn't have books at, in, at, his, you know, at, at his fingertips, and he starts quoting the sources that the Gemara says that if a boy is 12 and a half, and he is, you know, is he allowed to start preparing three months in advance of his, of his bar mitzvah to practice putting on tefillin? And he starts quoting all of these different sugyot in the Gemara, right? All these different tragedies in the Gemara um, that deal with this particular issue. And his final verdict was yes, this boy can put on tefillin, but he says to the boy, and this is in the tshuva, it's like in the answer that he writes in the book, he says to the boy, if somebody calls you to be part of a minion, to be part of a quorum of ten men, you have to tell them that you're not yet of the age. So it's just unbelievable when you think about, again, the questions. Forget the answers, but the questions that were, that were asked. And what I want to do is focus on one particular question that, um, that with Ashri was asked uh, during the war. I have the text for you both in Hebrew and in English. Um, the English is... Um, is kind of like a shortened, a condensed version of it. Um, the reason I have the Hebrew is just because um, for those of you that read Hebrew or are learning Hebrew, it is there is nothing like reading his own language and his own um, his own terminology and in, uh, in his literally in his voice and in, in his in his handwriting. Um, no in Hebrew, in Hebrew. So that's why like reading it in Lashon Hakodesh, reading it in its original language. Yes. Like he came here after the war, so he immigrated to the United States and um, and lived in Lower East Side. Yeah. So, um, oh, sorry. Do you need a? Oh, is this? That's yeah. Sorry. Yeah, this is actually that's just one that's not stapled. Here, let me give you this. Sorry, I'll take this one. Oh, perfect. Okay. Okay. So what is this? This is reciting who has not made me a slave in the ghetto. So in the morning blessings, right? There are a series of blessings that we said. We say, thank you, God, for letting me wake up this morning, and thank you for giving me shoes, and thank you for giving me the ability to see. So we go through a whole series of blessings in our, uh, in our morning, in our shacharit service. So what's the question here? And again, it's just unbelievable. We, Jews of the ghetto of Kovno in Lithuania, I'm on the, the last page in the English, um, we, the Jews of the ghetto of Kovno in Lithuania, were enslaved by the Germans. We're worked to the bone night and day without rest. We're starved and we're paid nothing. The German enemy decreed our total annihilation. We were completely dispensable. Most would die. One morning during prayer, even just get that, one morning during prayer, you're in the Kovna ghetto and there's prayer happening. Like, it's just mind-blowing because how many of us, how many of us don't pray when, it, when we're living in today, right? It's a very hard thing to do. And here you have a society that is completely dismantled, people that are completely broken, and yet they come together to pray every day. Like not, to, to me, like we could stop there and, and just meditate on that. Um, one morning during prayer, Rav Avraham Yosef, who was leading the congregation in the morning service, reached the blessing, who has not made me a slave? Shalom Asani Abed. We say, Baruch Atah Hashem Lokein and Belach Blessed are you, God. Shalom Asani Abed, who has not made me a slave? He gets to that blessing, who has not made me a slave, and shouted bitterly to the master of all masters, how can I recite the blessing of a free man? How can a hungry slave constantly abuse and demean, praise his creator by uttering, who has not made me a slave? Right, so you feel the pain of his question, like, I can't say this blessing. It's not true. God, what are you doing to me? Right, you can feel the pain of his question. Every morning as he led prayers, he let out the same cry. And many of those who joined him in prayer felt the same way. Get this. I was then asked for the Torah ruling on this question, right? So the men are like, so do we say it or don't we say it? I'm not really feeling it, but what, what does the halacha tell us? What, what is the law? So again, you come back, it's just remarkable that this was even, this was the thought process that they had. Should the blessing be omitted because it seemed to be a travesty, right? It's a brachal of atala. How can I make a blessing telling God that, I'm, that he didn't make me a slave when I am a slave, right? So it's, there's what's called in, in halakhic terms a bracha levatala, which is um, a blessing that's in vain. And you're not allowed to make a blessing that's in vain. You can't use God's name in vain. In which case it would be forbidden to recite it. Or was it forbidden to alter or skip any part of the prayer text established by our sages? So do I not say it because it's a bracha levatala? It's, it's a blessing in, in vain? Or do I have 
do I not have a right to alter my own prayer service? Do I not have a right to change the context of the prayer? So what's the response? And again, the Hebrew goes on to within a lot more detail. The response, one of the earliest commentators in the prayers points out that this blessing was not formulated in order to praise God for our physical liberty, but rather for our spiritual liberty. I therefore rule that we might not skip or alter this blessing under any circumstances. On the contrary, despite our physical captivity, we were more obligated than ever to recite the blessing to show our enemies that as a people, we were spiritually free. So, right? He renders this halakhic ruling, and again, he doesn't say, what are you feeling, right? He goes back to the sources. He goes back to the Torah Sheba Alpeh, which in, with the oral tradition that goes all the way back to the time of Moses giving, giving the Torah at Sinai, and he goes back to that, latching on to history, latching on to tradition, latching on to our sources, to say, what does the halakha tell us? What, how do we actually render this, render this question? Um, and the answer is that you say the blessing because it's about spiritual freedom. And I think this, coming back to this journey that we're on, this Sphira period, is exactly this. It's about learning what it means to become spiritually free and using tools that we have at our disposal to help concretize the idea and also help internalize and put to use and activate what it is that we can do to grow in our spiritual freedom, grow in our physical freedom, grow, grow in our metaphysical freedom. There are many different dimensions and ways in which we can explore those elements of growth. And the Sfirot that are literally tied to Sphira give us the tools and the dimensions with which to explore our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with God, and our relationship with each other. So I think that um, if we have the opportunity, and even if we start tonight, even if we haven't done, done it for the last 17 nights, even if we start tonight and understand the attribute within the attribute that is that of that particular day, of that particular week, I think we will find that this is a very enriching time period, um, and we will find ourselves ready for Shavuot. We will find ourselves prepared for Shavuot. So again, you think about a wedding, right, counting down or counting up, right, depending on how we look at it. Um, but there's so many things that have to be done. There are, there are tactics, there are details, there are things you can do to arrive at that day fully prepared. Prepared physically, because there are things that you have to do, seating and all that kind of fun stuff. And then there's, there's mikvah, there's spiritual preparation, there's tefillah, there's prayer, which is also a form of spiritual preparation. And there are all these different things that we can do to arrive. Not to show up, but to arrive. And the Sfirot and the Sfirot period really give us that opportunity to not just trip into Shavuot, not just let seven weeks pass between one holiday and the next and telling work that you're going to be off for this holiday that nobody's ever heard of, right? It's not just arriving at that. It's not just showing up at that day. It's truly arriving in all of our glory, in all of our ability, in all of our potential, using this as tools to help us achieve that. Any questions? Okay. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. And I think we're on for next week, and we'll do a little bit more of a, of a deep dive into some of these ideas. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. How much do you have? So welcome. Gives us a minute. Perfect.